So we're in 1 Corinthians 4.18, and we have finished Paul's introduction. And, and I don't know what you think, but I think that this introduction has been uh, somewhat challenging, always insightful and edifying, but, um, but I felt kind of like maybe a tour guide on a meandering river going down. There's, yeah, there's been a couple river, uh, ripples in the river, and now we're coming to chapter 5, and there's a big bend, and beyond the bend is the whitewater. And we're here. We're at the whitewater. We're moving right into it. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that we commit to um, preaching systematically, consecutively, uh, through large parts of Scripture in the Bible is to prevent scaredy cat preachers like me simply pulling the raft ashore and walking around the rapids and coming back in the river, okay, so to speak, if I can use that. So if we're going to get to the rich content in the rest of uh, 1 Corinthians, it's important that we go through the material in chapter number 5, and that's what we're going to do today. All of that simply to say... Don't shoot the messenger, okay? Chapter 5 is a challenging chapter. It's a, it's a challenging part of 1 Corinthians. But since this is where the Lord in his providence has us, I think it's safe to assume that this is where we need to be. Um, that, that, is, that is in these 13 verses of chapter 5 and in the introduction in chapter number 4, uh, this, this is what we need to work through. And God has a word for each of us individually and together as a church that we need to hear. Now, if you're like me, you have always struggled with the end of chapter number four. If you notice, I cut off, if, you, if your Bible is, is kind of cut off into paragraphs, I cut off in the middle of what is, is considered a paragraph last week. The reason I did that is I struggle with the end of chapter 4, and it was only in the last little bit that I realized that the end of chapter 4 is actually the introduction to chapter number 5. If you look at chapter 4, there's this huge change in tone uh, from, from 4.17 to 4.18. Uh, 4.18 begins on sexual immorality, and, and he changes his tone. He says, I'm going to come to you with a rod. He calls him arrogant in verse number 19, and, and you see that theme, that theme of arrogance in, in chapter uh, 5, verse 2, and chapter 5, verse 6. And, and so this unit that we're in goes from chapter 4.18 all the way to chapter 7 and verse number 40. And what he does, he first covers negatively um, sexual immorality in the church and lawsuits and even prostitution. And then he covers positively the, the idea of marriage. And that's, that's how, how he does it. And so Paul has moved on from the problem of divisions in the church, to um, which has largely been occupied his attention in the opening four chapters, and begins to address a case of uh, persistent sexual immorality, and has become an open scandal in the Corinthian church. 
Apparently, if you read verse number 9 of chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 9, you'll see that this is not the first time that Paul has addressed this subject. Uh, there's a reference to a previous letter that we do not have now that, that um, has, he has written to them on this matter. There was a prior letter. We don't have it. And, and he, he spoke on this issue. And now it's clear that, that those earlier instructions have gone ignored and unheeded. There's reports of gross aggravated sin still taking place and, and among them. And it's, it's reached back to Paul. And his earlier admonitions, his warnings have failed to persuade them. And now he's forced to write simply to explain why sexual immorality is incompatible with the life of a Christian. But more than that, now to direct the Corinthians into the difficult topic, what we call church discipline. Okay? Y'all are familiar with that, right? Church discipline. Now, there's a very interesting survey that I read years ago that I still bring some of mine. I brought it back up for, for this message. And it's by, it's by Barna. Um, it's easy for us to say that we agree with church discipline and it's really hard in practice and to practice it consistently. Barna says that the Barna group has found that only 5% of Christians in America indicated that their churches uh, did anything to hold them accountable for what they believed and how they lived. 5%. That's it. Okay? Um, and and uh, the, the director of the study, George Barna, offers the following by way of explanation for that stat. Why is it so low? I'm going to read a long quote from him. You ready? Here we go. Barna Group studies among pastors and other church leaders have consistently shown that such leaders have a distaste for, any, for initiating any kind of confrontation and conflict with congregants. Another barrier is that many followers of Christ are uncertain about the differences between judgment and discernment. Not wanting to be judgmental, they therefore avoid all conversation about another person's behavior except sometimes gossip. Now Barna goes on to say this. One of the cornerstones of the biblical concept of community is that of mutual accountability. Now listen, I talked about this earlier, but Americans these days cherish privacy and freedom to the extent that the very idea of being held accountable by others, even those with their best interests in minds, or have legal or spiritual authority to do so, it is considered inappropriate, antiquated, and rigid with the large majority of Christian churches proclaiming that people should know, trust, and obey all the behavior principles of the Bible, overlooking a principle as foundational as accountability breeds even more public confusion about scriptural authority and faith-based community as well as personal behavioral responsibility. And I think that's right on target. We cherish privacy and freedom to the extent that the very idea of being held accountable by others is considered inappropriate, antiquated, and rigid. And I'll just go as far as to say mean and none of your business. That's the American way. 
And yet that's not what God had for the community. I would venture to say even in this church with this congregation, and we do practice church discipline here, that, that the majority, only a, actually let me rephrase that, only a tiny percentage of the people here have seen church discipline done, let alone done well. I would say that's the case. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is weighty and it's hard and there's gravity and solemnity about Paul's teaching here and it should be sobering and and actually it should even be sanctifying for us all. And as we work through the material in chapter 5, this chapter is about what we call church discipline. I want to give you, I'm going to do, give you four things, the, the what, the how, the why, and the who of church discipline, if, if you can um, uh, bear with me as we go through this. And so let's talk about the what, the what of church discipline, what brought this up in the text. It's immorality. We need to see immorality for what it is. Look at chapter 5, verse number 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Did you catch how he, how he, um, he says it? He says it is actually reported. It's common knowledge that there's sexual immorality in the church. And the particular form is a man is having sexual relations with his stepmother. Uh, a church member in Corinth was guilty of a sin that not even his pagan neighbors practiced or tolerated. It was not tolerated at all in the Roman Empire or with the Greeks. The testimony of the church in Corinth is thereby seriously hindered by letting this go on. Not only this, we see from the, uh, from the, the text that this is not just a one-night stand. This is a perpetual course of action because he doesn't use the word had his father's wife. It says has. It's a continual form. They're not married to each other, but they're, they're living in immorality with one another. Also notice that the man needs to be removed. Obviously, she is not a member I don't know if he caught that or not. He's the one to be removed, not her. She's not a member of the church. He is a member. He's, a, he's part of the assembly. He needs to be removed. And, and by them not doing this, Paul calls them arrogant. Why would he call them arrogant? Why do we call them arrogant? They are arrogant because of what he said earlier. They are self-satisfied and they do not think that they need to do what God commands. They are ignoring what God tells them to do, you see? And so this is a, this is a very serious thing. We, we have to be careful, by the way. Um, <clears throat> we have to be careful that we don't form our opinions of these things based on our culture. You, you know, it used to be in American culture that sexual immorality was a stain and wouldn't be tolerated in society. And that, that went a very long time into our culture. But today, we don't even bat an eye over people living together before they get married, do we? We don't even bat an eye. I think even back when I was a, a child, uh, somebody who was living together was kind of marked out. Uh, that was not that long ago. Um, 
And, um, and yet, today, the, we don't even think about it. It's just assumed. It's just assumed that people are going to live together before they get married. And churches are under intense pressure from members who have bought into the cultural values to compromise on a biblical stance on sexual immorality. They're, they're, they're being pressured that way. And so the Bible is clear that sexual immorality should not be tolerated in church. But sexual immorality and all purity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among the saints. Um, and, and let me say this. The reason for that is because the marriage bond is a picture of Christ in the church. When you go to Ephesians chapter 5 and Paul's going through that, that marital relationship, he says this mystery is profound. I'm not speaking, uh, I'm speaking of Christ in the church. And you go all the way back into the Old Testament and you see that that is the case. And so sexual immorality is an affront to God because it distorts the picture of his bond that he has with his people. And it goes all the way back into the Old Testament. And so it, it perverts that picture. But the Corinthians, they, they went beyond even the cultural norm. Did you know that? It's not that they accepted the cultural norm of sexual immorality. They went beyond and they accepted incest. So what gives? Why did, why did they go beyond even what the Greeks and the Romans? Well, very interesting part of, of the section that we're going to look at. This section in chapter 5, the first half of chapter 6 is, is about lawsuits, which is about money, right? And then the last half of chapter 6 is about prostitution, which once again is about money that has caused many commentators to believe that the reason that this man was not disciplined out of the church is he's a very well-to-do man. And so they were looking the other way because this person has money or has status. By the way, this, the money status would have gone along with the money in the society, right? Because it does today, probably even more so in that day. And so the church is tempted to look the other way at people's faults, to make exceptions because of this person's status and the benefits that they receive from his money. This is devastating to a church. The sin will just infect and spread. Now, let's talk about the how. So we talk about the what. We see immorality. The how. How do you do church discipline? You deliver him to Satan for salvation. Now, let's look at the next verses. I'm, I'm going to explain them very briefly and then move on. Verse number 3, 5, 3. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. As if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? What's the purpose? Here's the purpose clause, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So whenever a person in the, um, whenever the church engages someone who is living in habitual sexual immorality, it is to deliver them to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to deliver them to Satan? That sounds really mean, doesn't it? 
It's actually not as mean as what it sounds like. Let me explain it. Ready? Who is the God of this world? Satan. What it means is you're going to remove him from your assembly and allow him to live in the world where Satan is, has dominion. Does that make sense? It's deliver him to the world and let him live like the world if that's what he wants to do. That's all it means for the destruction of the flesh. Satan is the ruler of this world. This is all consistent with the teaching of Jesus. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 15. So if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There it is, right there laid out for Jesus. Paul's telling them, look, I wrote you a letter already. Confront the guy. Now he's writing him a second letter. He's saying, if you don't confront the guy, I'll be more than happy to come there and do it. Actually, he doesn't say that. He said, I'd rather not come this way. I'd rather come uh, with encouraging words rather than having to confront this guy. But obviously, this guy has been confronted, and now it's time for him to leave the church. He's not leaving, and they don't have the, the, the willpower, I guess, to, to make it happen. And so Paul says to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, what does he mean by flesh? Flesh is the passions of our sin nature, okay? He, he's talking about evil, sinful passions that rule over people that do not have Christ. For example, in Romans 7, verse number 5, while we are living in the flesh, what? What characterizes living in the flesh? Flesh are sinful passions aroused by the law, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So there you see, in the flesh means our sinful passions. One more, in, he tells the the Corinthians, or I'm sorry, the Galatians, the Christian, that Christ has crucified, been crucified for the, the, um, the removal of that. And he says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified in the flesh. Why? With its passions and its desires. So when he says, um, to, to, uh, for the flesh to die, what Paul is literally saying is, I want this man to be removed so that he can uh, uh, live to the passions of his flesh. And what will happen is that he will see, as a, if he's a believer, that they're not rewarding, they're empty, and I, he will die to those passions and he will come back into the church. That's what he's saying. So it's actually an, an act of mercy to do that. Notice the last phrase of verse number five. He says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The purpose is not revenge. The purpose is not to pour out anger or wrath. The purpose in removing somebody from the fellowship is the hope that they will see the vanity and the futility of living to the flesh and, and repent and come back and be saved. Now, he uses that language because if they go out into the world and they never come back to the church and they love being in the world, what does that tell you about that person to begin with? They were never saved to begin with, see? And so that, that's, that's the reason for his language. So, so, so far, uh, we've seen church discipline is not a mean thing, is it? 
it's not mean. It's, it's a very, I heard one person say, agree with me. I'm glad at least one person agrees with me in here. <laughs> Y'all are great. So, I, Let's go to the why. Why does the church go to that, that, um, that degree? Well, the answer is, if you don't take care of the sin, it will grow. Look at verse number six. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you, are, are, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We say it today, one bad apple's What? Thank you. Spoils a whole bunch or old bushel or whatever, whole barrel, whatever it happens to be. In other words, sin has a way of spreading. And he's borrowing a metaphor and building an illustration from the practice of the Passover, where the Jews were only to eat unleavened bread for seven days. After the Passover sacrificial lamb was slaughtered, the Jews would, they would sweep the house from top to bottom. Every drawer, every cupboard was to be cleaned out. And it, it's still the practice by observant Jews to do that today. It was to be cleaned out. They remove all the dust from the house and remove all the leaven so that there's no possibility of any leaven, any yeast getting into the dough. And it, all it takes is just a little. And it's unseen and it's unnoticed to have its pervasive effect. Um, Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin, and get this, please listen. Sin, when it is tolerated, excused, ignored, and indulged, is like an infection. It will spread eventually. And the great danger that discipline addresses is that pervasive, quiet spread that goes unnoticed of sin. It's like yeast silently permeating or permeating a batch of dough in unrepentant sin. When excuses for sin are made in one case, then the pressure mounts to make an excuse over here, doesn't it? Right. And, and, and then pretty soon you're doing it for another. And before you know it, the church is hamstrung saying, one thing from the pulpit as the Bible is being taught while refusing to expect the members in the pew to actually conform to what is being preached in the pulpit. And the tension that creates eventually gives way and it becomes unstable. And so this is, this is why we do it. It is a, a wonderful thing for the church to practice to bring about the repentance of that one who was excluded and also to keep the church holy and pure. Time and time again, where churches make excuses for sin, you find that the preaching begins to pull punches and they stop speaking to real issues that will challenge the consciences and the lives of members. And do you know what that church pretty soon becomes when they do that? Pretty soon, it's not a church at all. You find that in the book of Revelation, don't you? Where Jesus is addressing the churches. They're not really churches, some of them. It, it becomes a vaguely religious club 
And all it is is studiously avoiding anything that might possibly give offense. And by the time you stop speaking on things that might give offense to someone, you don't have anything to say, right? It, it, it's absolutely true. And so a little, Paul is aware of this, and so he says a little leaven, leaven's a whole lump, and, and compromise here and there, and if we're not careful, it has a pervasive effect. And so there's, there's a danger that discipline addresses. It preserves the peace and the purity of the church, and it's very important to do. Um, let's go on to the next thing. I'll, I'll save that for later. The who, the who of church discipline. The church should only separate from immoral believers. That's it. Look at, look at verse number nine. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. What is, it, what is he saying? You can't not associate with immoral people. Just don't associate with the immoral people in the church. The, realize that the world is immoral, and our world is immoral. You, you can't live like a, mer, a hermit or a, um, something like that. It's just not going to work. The Corinthians misunderstood Paul to mean that they couldn't have social in, in interaction engagements with sexually immoral people in the world. That's not what he meant. Otherwise, you couldn't talk to anybody, could you? Right? The faithful believers are not to keep company with any fellow believers who persistently practice serious sins as those mentioned here. The offenders will not listen to the counsel and the warning of two or three other believers and are not even of the whole church. They're to be put out of the fellowship. They should not be allowed to participate in activities of the church. Worship services, Sunday school, Bible studies, even social events. And obviously, and most importantly, they should not be allowed leadership roles. They should be totally cut off from individual and corporate fellowship while, with other Christians, including that of eating together, according to Apostle Paul. I know what you're thinking because I think the same thing. That's really harsh, isn't it? it it's it is harsh and it sounds harsh. It's difficult. I'm not going to lie to you. And, and it's one of the issues with church discipline, our Western culture, is that we don't naturally trust our leadership. It's, it's built into the fabric of our culture. And so when somebody is disciplined in, in the church, the leadership of the church can't give all the details. Because then that would be gossip and slander, wouldn't it? That's what, that's what the Bible instructs us. So the leadership then is tasked with a responsibility to, to tell the church this is the case of what's going on. In general terms, we believe, um, according to Scripture, that this person needs to be disciplined out. The problem with it and it's been over and over and over. I've been in ministry now. This is my 30th year of ministry. And I've seen it over and over. You practice church discipline as a leadership. The person is disciplined out. And, and somebody or a group of people say, you know what? But that's my friend. I really love Joe Blow. And so they invite him over for dinner. And that person then begins to make a case. And they listen to the case, and pretty soon, not only is the leadership stupid, 
They're mean and they're uncaring and, and they've had the wool pull over their eyes. What, how, how do I know this? Because I've heard it all. And then you, you go to them and you can't, you, you're hamstrung because you can't give details. And so you look at them and say, but you haven't heard the other side. You haven't heard the leadership side. And I'm not at liberty to tell you because you're not part of the solution. And, and I've actually had people look me right in the face and say, yeah, I know. I bet if I heard the other side, I would agree with you completely. And they give lip service to that. Then the next thing you know, they're not in a church anymore because they did not do what the Bible asked them to do. And that is not to socialize with the person. They heard the one side, then they mistrusted the leadership, and now they're gone. I've seen it over and over and over. And, and it, it is a difficult thing to do. Let me just say this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it straight up, okay? Everybody tells me I'm confrontational. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry. <laughs> Listen, if someone is put out of the church and a member has them over to their house for a meal or fellowship, they are directly disobeying a command of the Lord. Not the church, God Almighty. And if they are part of the dissension in that church as a result, they will answer to the Lord for their actions. Okay, that's not me speaking, that's, that's the Lord. Okay, that's not Jared Edgecombe, but it has to be said in that in certain terms. Now, Paul knew that they would have a hard time. And so he repeated his command. Look at what he says. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality, but he doesn't stop there. Greedy people, idolaters, revilers, slander, or, uh, uh, drunkards, or swindlers do not even eat with those kind of people. So it doesn't stop with sexual immorality. This is a list, this is a list of the, of the ones you're not to associate with. And what's interesting about this list is if you go through other passages in the New Testament, people who have this as their pattern of life, the Bible says have their part in the lake of fire. That's the way it uses, that's terminology. And that's why you don't associate with somebody like that um, because of that. So any so-called Christian in a church who has a habit of life a reputation of sexual immorality, a reputation of greed, a reputation of idolatry, a, a reputation of drunkenness, a reputation of swindling, or a reputation of being a reviler, they are to be sent out of the church. That's a pattern of behavior. Now, let me be clear about something. Please listen. It is quite possible, and it has happened many times, that a church member might, for a very short period of time, um, display those characteristics but the conviction of the holy spirit and sometimes even church discipline is going to cause that person to repent and come back no one so this idea in the churches that i grew up in well you know what um johnny uh, he prayed a prayer when he was 11, and I know he hadn't been in church in 20 years, and he's living like the devil, but he's saved because he prayed a prayer and walked the aisle. That's not what the Bible says, okay? The Bible says that that person's not a believer. We need to understand that biblical truth. So, so um, we, that's what we're to do. That's what we're to do. Let me finish verses 12 and 13. 
For what have I do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church with whom you judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Just purge them out. And so this is a very hard uh, uh, text today. If you're visiting with us and you're saying, man, I just wanted to come and be worship the Lord. Well, there you go. Okay. Uh, not every sermon's that way. Don't walk out of here saying, man, that guy at Providence Bible, he's a mean. Look, I'm just, I'm just the messenger, as I said earlier. Let me conclude by taking us back to verse number seven. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And what are we to do? We are to therefore celebrate that festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but what? With the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Don't you want to worship God in sincerity and truth? Don't you? The Bible wants, the God wants you to be so sincere the, the gospel of the crucified Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, our true Passover, it changes everything, doesn't it? It, it, it changes everything because Jesus has died and shed his blood for us, we are saved. And if we are to keep the lifelong festival of celebration for all that Christ has done, then the leaven of sin simply is not welcome in our lives any longer. In light of the cross, in light of what Christ has done, what will we refuse to seek to make our lives conform to all he has asked of us? Remember the hymn? The hymn that says this. It says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, thou were an offering far too small. Remember that hymn? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Jesus has died so he can claim everything, not just each of us, but all of us together. Live in light of the grace of God, the love of Jesus Christ who gave all for you. And you will see that sin cannot be played or trifled with or indulged in because you want to glorify God and give Jesus the appropriate praise because he died in your place, his life for yours. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a magnificent gospel it is. And so therefore, we obey him because he first loved us before he loved us, or before we loved him. Lord, I thank you for what Jesus has done on the cross. What he has done makes our duties seem so minuscule. Lord, I pray that this church, that individually, that we will love Jesus so much that we are willing to have that uncomfortable or conversation with somebody who we see is strained. I pray that we will love you so much that we'll, we'll be willing to have that hard conversation with somebody who needs it. And Lord, I pray that we will love you so much that as a church, we will lovingly not tolerate habitual and continual sin in our midst, Lord, not because we don't like that person, but rather because we love Jesus so much that we do not want to disappoint him. And we want to hear 
On that day, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, make us that kind of a church. Make us, Lord, a people who loves you so much that we can stand before you and worship you in sincerity and truth, having uh, examined our lives, knowing that to the best of our knowledge, we are living in obedience to you. What a rewarding way to live. In Christ's name, amen.